0: group results are going to be baked into the system without any regard for the individual. And it's going to take place at such a deep level that it will be very hard to prove The administrator at Cornell or Harvard or Yale can say, I know nothing about this. We don't
1: discriminate. We're just using software that says it's bias-free. Don't sue me. In this episode, I sit down with Cornell law professor William Jacobson. Out of Cornell's 1,700 faculty members, he's the only one openly conservative and for over a decade has faced threats harassment, and organized campaigns to eject him from the school. And the one diversity that you will never hear implemented on campuses is diversity of viewpoint. Professor Jacobson is the founder of the Legal Insurrection Blog and Foundation, which exposes and takes action against DEI discrimination in higher education, medical schools, and the corporate world. When you look at these DEI statements, they not
0: only require you to recite that you agree with this, they also want you to show how
1: you have tailored your career to advance it. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Mm-hmm. Professor William Jacobson, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. I first really became aware of uh, legal insurrection, I think a bit late actually. It was in, in 2021. I guess you profiled one of my interviews with uh, Victor Davis Hansen. And, and I thought, wow, this is an amazing site. Look at all the stuff they've got. Paul Rossi has written for you. He's been on the show, and you actually have this incredible body of work that you've been developing over over, <laughs> over a great many years. I mean, and I, I can't help but remember that you actually went to school with Kimberly Crenshaw, which is you know a, a remarkable thing because you ended up focusing quite a bit on critical race theory. So, just how did this all come about? You know. Sure. So I was in private practice in Providence, Rhode Island and
0: um, representing investors and employees against stock brokerage firms. I had a national practice and I'd graduated law school in 1984 from Harvard Law School and ended up in Providence and uh, then became very ill and decided to, not decided to, but had to leave private practice. And a year later I joined Cornell Law School in the specialty that I had been practicing law. And at the time they hired me, I had no blog, no website. I wasn't political. But during the 2008 presidential election, I became very frustrated with the media bias, the overwhelming media bias in favor of Obama, Obama Obama-Biden. And uh, still never said anything. And then I was having dinner with a former client, someone I'd won a lot of money for, in late August. And he asked me, who are you voting for? He said, well, I'm voting for John McCain and Sarah Palin. And we got into this really long argument. And at the end of it, he said, you know, I've never heard anybody explain your side as well as you do. You should start a blog. I had no idea what a blog was, so I started to look into it. And that led me to form and launch in October of 2008, Legal Insurrection, as a solo blog on Google Blogger, free platform, and that the rest, to some extent is history, and now we're a whole big operation, we've got a foundation, we've got multiple websites, but Legal Insurrection started as a classic solo blog when blogs were a big thing before Twitter
1: was as big as it is now or Facebook. Well, I'm, I'm remembering that uh, you know, one of your positions uh, back then was you believed that President Obama was much more radical than he was, than he was portraying himself to be and you were witnessing as in those administrations racialization happening. So tell me a little bit about that. And something that's very fascinating is you, you actually kind of have, you've seen in even some of your alma mater, the process of, I, I guess it would be uh, institutional capture happening. I, I, w- I want to explore that. Yeah. <clears throat> so in many ways I've been an eyewitness to
0: what we now call the critical race phenomenon or the racialization of education, capture of institutions. Really, as you indicated, going back to my days at Harvard Law School in the early 1980s, at that time it was called critical legal studies. That was the hot topic, critical legal theory. And Harvard Law School was an epicenter of that. It was the most famous, not the only, but the most famous. And I began to realize then the racialization of those concepts. Nobody used the term critical race theory. It hadn't been coined yet as a term, but it was critical legal theory, but the building of coalitions of so-called people of color, the racialization of everything. And so I, I witnessed that. And as you mentioned, one of my classmates was Kimberly Crenshaw, who went on to invent the concept of intersectionality, and I think coined the phrase critical race theory. And uh, then I went off into private practice. And the most radical students who were involved in critical legal theory went into academia. So when I finally started paying attention to critical race theory, much more recently, within the last decade or so, it all made sense to me that now I understand the formative years were the injection of race, essentially substituting race for class. In your classic Marxist approach to everything, rather than class struggle, which never really has gained traction in the U.S. because in the U.S., unlike some countries, people can move between classes. If you look at all our billionaires, very few of them were born wealthy. They've created things. So in the U.S., that classic class struggle Marxism doesn't really work for people, but they latched on to race as a substitute. And so now it's racial struggle, never-ending racial struggle, that the system is uh, you know, corrupt from a race point of view. It can't be fixed. It has to be overthrown. And so now it all made sense to me when I started to, to see this. And really, although the term critical race theory wasn't used during the Obama campaign in 2008, a lot of those concepts were. And that's what got me very frustrated and got me to, to launch the website. Uh, My first two or three posts at Legal Insurrection in October 2008 were about the racialization of the campaign and how race was being used as a weapon to silence people. Not silence them because the government is going to throw you in prison, but to silence them because the false accusation of being a racist is extremely damaging. It can cost you your job. It can cost you your education. It can cost you, you know, personal relationships. And so I began to see that being used with such frequency. And that's how I started writing at Legal Insurrection. It was not exclusively about the use of race in the campaign, but a significant part of it was.
1: So you were also uh, at Hamilton College. Mm-hmm. You believe that what happened to Hamilton College is sort of, a, in a way, a model of how Institutions were captured. It, it's very interesting because there's still, you know, there seems to be a lot less debate today than, say, there were three years ago about, you know, um, many uh, 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 colleges and especially Ivy League colleges institutions being overly left-wing. But at some point, this was even like a huge contention, if I recall, right? Yeah. But it it seems to be less so now. Yeah, so another thing I witnessed was the essentially the capture of Hamilton College.
0: So I started Hamilton College in the late 70s. It was an all-male, very conservative, fairly stodgy, uh, but very traditional sort of education. You had to take you know, English and you had to study the classics and it, nothing that would be considered trendy at all. And there was this sister school across the road, literally across the road, uh, called Kirkland College, which had been started in the 60s as kind of a new wave college, alternative sort of school, very heavily focused on the arts, pottery, and things like that. It was very different school. And it was actually a pretty good blend. So you had the girls' school, which was trendy, 60s, sort of quasi-hippie-ish school. And you had the stodgy, conservative school. And it actually worked pretty well. The problem is that Kirkland College couldn't survive financially. And so Kirkland went out of, essentially went out of business, and rather than having an empty school across the road, Hamilton College acquired Kirkland. So my sophomore year, Hamilton College went co-ed. And then over the years, what happened with the Kirkland faculty was very radical, very far left, and they gradually took over the committees. They started hiring only their own, and over two decades, stodgy conservative Hamilton College became indistinguishable from Oberlin College or Wesleyan College in terms of the ideology. It was completely captured, so captured that a couple of the senior professors at Hamilton College got full funding, 100% funding to construct a building and create an institute on Hamilton's campus called the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization because Western civilization as a study topic had essentially been driven out of the curriculum at Hamilton. It was considered racist. They were in favor of multicultural approaches, in favor, in fact, of what we now call critical race theory approaches that at that time probably wasn't used as a term and they got 100% funding. The administration agreed. It wouldn't have cost the college a penny. The faculty threw a fit, rose up against it, and Hamilton ended up backing away. That's how radicalized the faculty had become. They had made a, um, perf- a job offer to somebody who used to be one of the Weather Underground terrorists. That kind of blew up on everything. I think it was Susan Rosenberg was her name. Um, and that was such a controversy, the college backed away. But that's what it was. Those are the types of people they hired. And so I witnessed how l- literally in two decades a college that went back a couple of hundred years based on the you know, classic Western education was completely taken over by leftist faculty such that it's now indistinguishable from all the other left-leaning or far-left colleges that are out there. So I saw the genesis in the early 80s at Harvard Law School. I saw what happened at Hamilton College. And while I may not have been involved in it personally, I witnessed it. I knew it was going on, and I followed these trends. And that, in part, was the motivation for me finally in 2008, when challenged by a former client, say, yes, I'm going to start writing about this. I'm
1: not going to keep my mouth shut anymore. It's now time for me to come out of the closet as a conservative. Mm -hmm. Why was Western civilization, the teaching of it, an anathema to these faculty? Well, I think it
0: goes back to these basic critical
1: race theory
0: concepts of us being systemically racist society. That the racism is not necessarily conscious in people, and therefore, you know, the, the you know dead white male authors um, are inherently racist. That they grew out of a racist system. So I think it's just an attitude that our entire society is sick and therefore we should not be elevating the foundations of our society, which regardless of your race, color, or ethnicity, are Western civilization foundations here. And So I think it was in many ways a revolt against the country consistent with what the goals are of critical race theory and critical legal theory, which is tearing down society. That society cannot be cured around the edges that it can only be torn, torn down. And so I think that is really a driving force throughout academia, is that we are you know, irredeemably corrupt as a society, and therefore incremental improvements simply sustain a racist society that there has to be a wholesale uh, you know, deconstruction, I think is one of their favorite words, a wholesale
1: deconstruction of society. Or decolonization, right, is another is another term. Becoming aware of all of this only in the last, you know, 10, 10 years, let's say, that all of this is really happening. Um, it po- caused me to study up on Western civilization. I realized how much I didn't know. You know, I think I think in high school I was probably one of the last cohorts that actually had Western civ courses, and it was some. I, I mean, I loved it, but I didn't dig in. I didn't go deep. So much good has come out of western civilization <laughs> right it's almost hard to hard to catalog at all yet yet we're it, it has become a societal almost concept that we just we, we we don't talk about I mean aside from the people that are actively have this animosity and are seeking to break it down it shows you how influential academia is
0: I remember through these many years and decades people would frequently say oh that's just a couple of crazy professors someplace. Well, they indoctrinated and they taught generations of students to believe that Western civilization is uniquely evil. Now you can look at Western civilization and certainly a lot of bad things have happened. Nobody's denying that. But it is not unique in the history of humankind that mass murders take place, that genocides take place, those that colonization takes place. That is not unique to Western civilization, but the way it's taught on campuses is that it is unique to Western civilization and that Western civilization therefore is somehow uniquely evil and needs to be fought against and needs to be driven off campuses. And that's what's happened. It's an ahistorical perspective on our very bad world where bad things have happened everywhere throughout you know, many
1: generations, but that's not taught. Well, you know, one of the things that has come out of Western civilization, maybe not uniquely, but uh, you know, maybe you can probably even tell me more about this, but, but you know, almost uniquely perhaps, is rule of law, right? Yeah, I mean, I can't say whether that's unique to Western civilization.
0: I, I don't want to overextend myself, right. but it certainly is a feature of Western civilization, not just rule of law, but rule of law to protect the individual the concept of individual rights, the concept of the individual as being worthy of protection as opposed to group identity. I mean, much of the history of the world are groups fighting against each other, not elevating an individual, not treating people as an individual, but treating people as a member of your group, whether it's a religious group or a caste or whatever it happens to be. So Western civilization in many ways was a uniquely liberating force in world history. I can't say it's unique, but it certainly was the, the most powerful. And those concepts made their way into our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution and our history since then. And that's what's seeking to be torn down, is a focus on the individual. That now what matters are group results. So it doesn't matter under the current dynamic whether you were treated fairly as an individual. If your group has a worse outcome, now all of a sudden it's claimed you're the victim of discrimination. Part of what they're fighting against is the protection of the individual. Almost every society, if you look at it around the world, historically when group rights and group identity is elevated over the rights and identity of the individual, very bad things happen. I mean that's what causes genocide. That's what causes other you know, mass killings and mass abuse is treating people as group members, not as individuals. And that's what we're, we're losing. And one of the things we're doing is fighting to reestablish, and we're not alone, but what a lot of the pushback that you're seeing is really reestablishing the rights and dignity of the individual and elevating the individual over the group. And
1: that's what I think in many ways the battle is now in society but also on campuses. The title of your blog was, like, I guess, in a way kind of prophetic, right? On the one hand, you, you didn't want it to be an illegal insurrection. Right. That would be a bad <laughs> brand, right? But, but, but actually, it, it's an insurrection to bring back a rule of law, right, of sorts. Well, right? it's, the way the name developed
0: was, so I, I mentioned I was challenged to start a blog, and I needed a blog title and I did word association and the word, I was so frustrated with what was happening, the word insurrection came to mind. This is 2008. So I looked it up in the dictionary and by definition an insurrection is illegal. I said, well, I just started a new job as a law professor. Maybe that's not the best title. So I said, why don't I call it legal insurrection, which actually is a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as a legal insurrection. What does it mean? Is it Does it mean that you're going to have an insurrection within the law, within the legal community? Or does it mean that you're going to have a societal insurrection but you're going to do it through lawful means? And so I think it's a little bit of both. There was no branding idea. There was no strategy. It was, okay, let's do this. And if you look at the top of our website, LegalInsurrection.com, there's some wording which is pulled straight from the dictionary. I mean that's how simple it was when I started. I just copied and pasted from the dictionary and it is you know, an uprising against established authority which is the definition of insurrection um, in accordance with and as permitted by law. Of course after January 6th some people said, well maybe you should change your name. <laughs> We're not changing our name. That's been our brand since 2008. And people can read into it, but I think it's a little of both. It's a little of insurrection within the law, but it's also a lawful means of an insurrection
1: within society. Well, you know, but I, I have to tell you, I kind of like my version even better, right? <laughs> because you know, there's this sort of slow drip of loss of rule of law in all, in all sorts of ways, and you catalog it in multiple ways on the site itself. And so this the insurrection is actually to maintain rule of law today. Well, anyway, at least, at least that's my version, right? So, so of course you started with the Legal Insurrection blog, uh, but you also have a number of other websites, you know, criticalrace.org, equalprotect.org. Uh, what, just tell me a little bit about what the purpose of these is.
0: Sure. So we started with the blog LegalInsurrection.com in 2008. And in 2019, we launched the Legal Insurrection Foundation, which is a tax-exempt 501 501c3 nonprofit, LegalInsurrectionFoundation.org. And the purpose of that was to advance our research. We've done a lot of research over the years and to build up those resources to improve our research and investigations. And we've launched two projects since 2019. The first was in 2021, which is CriticalRace.org. It's really a unique website which maps out the spread of critical race theory in higher education, in medical schools, elite K-12 private schools, and even the U.S. military academies. And in February of this year, 2023, we launched the Equal Protection Project, which is EqualProtect.org, which is meant to take the research we do at CriticalRace.org and act on it. So at mm. criticalrace.org, we've documented how this has spread, but we never acted on it because we didn't have that mechanism. So, equalprotect.org files complaints, gets publicity, exposes discrimination that takes
1: place in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. You know, what, what do you make of this affirmative action ruling? I mean, I, I've actually had people on the show tell me very different things. One of the plaintiffs in that Supreme Court case told me this is a huge win. We're, we're going back to how things, you know, should be. And I also had um, uh, Heather McDonald come on and say um, there's, uh, you know, poison pill in what was said. Um, there's going to be there's ways that they can have now to get around it. So where do you stand on this? Well, it's all of
0: the above. First of all, great decision, extremely important to completely and unequivocally reject what is frequently referred to as equity or diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are group identities that Supreme Court announced that every individual, is entitled under the Equal Protection Clause to the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution to be treated as an individual, not based on racial stereotypes or ethnic stereotypes, which in the Harvard case were mostly to the detriment of students or applicants of Asian background, Asian descent, who were clearly discriminated against. And the Supreme Court so established that and said uh, that merely wanting a diversity of race is not enough to overcome that equal protection that each individual is entitled to. So legally, an enormously important decision that will have implications, I think, far beyond admission to universities, which was the narrow context of it. In terms of the poison pill, there was a sentence in there where the Supreme Court said, while you can't consider the race of an applicant off the table you can consider the experience that the applicant has had with racism or other fact, similar factors. And uh, that is a loophole that Harvard seized on immediately. We can't ask you what race you are, and can not we can't take that into consideration. But you can tell us in your essay about that. Uh, now, in the very next sentence, the Supreme Court said, Well, what we just said can't be used as a loophole. You you can't just use essays to get around our other findings. So it's a little unclear how that's going to play out in the real world. But it clearly was a little bit of an opening that Harvard and others have seized on. But I think that gets to a, a different point, which is the focus on race, the focus on multiculturalism is so deeply embedded in the university bureaucracy and many corporate bureaucracies now in HR departments that no matter what the Supreme Court said they're going to try to find a way to get around it and we've seen that and we tracked at my website a lot of those developments before the decision when everybody knew what the decision was likely to be but hadn't been issued yet so they start eliminating SAT scores and other Uh, standardized testing, because the Asian students in the Harvard case, their primary piece of proof were the disparate SAT scores required for an Asian student to get accepted versus a black or Hispanic student to get accepted, and even as to a white student uh, to get accepted. Uh, Clearly discriminatory. So they're not going to eliminate their racial preferences, they're going to eliminate the proof of their racial preferences, things like standardized test scores. There's no doubt that the Supreme Court decision is enormously important, but no one should kid themselves that all of a sudden, with the stroke of a pen, the Supreme Court eliminated racial preferences in higher education. They will continue, but they're going to continue either even deeper underground than before. And One of the things that we're very focused on is how technology is going to assist in hiding this the use of algorithms to evaluate, the use of artificial intelligence. We're already seeing this play out at entities like LinkedIn, where they're using their algorithms to present what they call diverse pools of candidates, which are essentially manipulated pools of candidates. You're gonna see that, that the way the algorithms are being certified, because they have to be certified, and this is a big Biden administration push, as bias-free and the way the artificial intelligence that's used to evaluate applicants is certified is going to have to prove that it's bias-free. Well, what do they mean by bias-free? What they mean are group results. That if you your algorithm for an engineering position is producing a pool of candidates based on GPA and where you went to school and what your experience is, that does not reflect the racial mix that they think should be presented it's not bias-free. So they make you go back and tweak your algorithm. What is your algorithm looking for? And so basically what you're going to see is technology developing in a way that gets them the quotas they want without the university or the company having to do a thing. All they will say is well we are using artificial intelligence that's been certified as bias-free, but in fact it's actually quotas. It's stealth quotas. Well it's, it's, it's like the height of doublespeak, it's precisely biased. It's precisely biased to achieve a, the quota, the racial and ethnic and other quotas that they want. That's how it's biased and that has now been defined as bias free. So that's another thing that we're seeing even before the Supreme Court decision that I think is going to ramp up. They will essentially offload the discrimination to the coders who create the technology to screen people because the reality is certainly large companies, they don't go through a thousand resumes. They have software that sorts it and tells them, you know, of the thousand people who applied for this job, who are the ten you should interview? Uh, and so that's very common and it's going to be work its way into the medical field. It's going to work its way into the legal field. So getting back to your original question, Supreme Court decision, hugely important. There is a loophole. We don't know how that's going to play out in the real world, but the universities will find, try to find
1: a way around it. You know, it of course reminds me of what Google euphemistically called machine learning fairness. If you remember that term, it basically create biased results so that they're fair, which is essentially yes. the exactly the same principle here. Um, I mean, that's. Very difficult to screen for unless you have another some other kind of group that's going in and just looking what you know what what would a, what would a random choice look like or what would a merit based choice look like or what is even if you're removing the measures of merit even then how would you even know that it just struck me what a dangerous time to be full speed developing AI because this is right now the AI development is kind of going into that you know, the, the exponential curve part of its development and if this stuff is all baked in there and then we have bureaucracies implementing it, that, that feels like a very dystopian future to me. It really is. It's really going to be baked
0: into the system. Quotas and group results are going to be baked into the system without any regard for the individual. And it's going to take place at such a deep level that it will be very hard to prove You would literally have to go to the software company that developed the software to find out how they did it. That's multiple levels removed. The administrator at Cornell or Harvard or Yale can say, I know nothing about this. We don't discriminate. We're just using software that says it's bias-free. Don't sue me, Okay? Um, The hiring person at a company can, can honestly say, I'm not discriminating, I'm just accepting or at least as a starting point what this bias-free software provides. And so it's going to take place at a level which is very hard for people to know. You, even some employers may not know that they're not getting the best engineers, they're just getting a manipulated pool of candidates to achieve a desired quota based on race and ethnicity and other factors. So it's very insidious. I think that people in Congress and Capitol Hill don't understand it. There's been legislation proposed, which I think will make this worse, and it's bipartisan legislation. It's not on the table now. It was proposed last year as part of a larger Privacy Act, but Mm -hmm. there was a section in it dealing with algorithmic biases, Mm -hmm. and I think the people who drafted that either are ignorant, which is probably most likely. They just used verbiage that sounded nice, or somebody who has an agenda work their way into it. And that's something that we're going to be focusing on, is calling on Congress not to make it worse. And I think what you'll see is you will hopefully see also pushback at the state level. Because these softwares, these algorithms that get certified, Florida, Texas, other red states, may need to consider legislation that says if we are going to use as a state software, algorithms, artificial intelligence that's been certified as bias-free. It also has to be certified that no tweaks were made to it to achieve quotas. But people have to wake up to it. And that's one of the things we're going to try to do is wake people up to what is happening is going to be more insidious than what we call affirmative action because it's going to take place at a level that people don't even know it's happening.
1: Well, and you know, there's already an example of this sort of thing happening in the, sort of, the realm of social and emotional learning tests. The point is that companies already exist that are ready to implement exactly the sort of uh, type of technology, like they're, they're ready to rock as far as I can tell. I think that's right.
0: You're going to yeah. see the same consultant class arise with regard to algorithms and artificial intelligence and machine learning that you've seen in the education sphere. Follow the money. That's where the money's going to be. There's going to be contracts handed out. There's going to be consultants involved. People may not realize that the the, what I loosely call the critical race industry or the the DEI industrial complex is enormous. Multi-billion dollar a year industry to service uh, the agenda of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which really is an agenda of critical race theory and not treating people as individuals, treating them as group members, proxies for group members. The teachers unions are very heavily involved. Every place we go, when we look into what's happening in education, you bump into the National Education Association or the American Federation of Teachers multi-billions, maybe even tens of billions
1: of dollars a year go towards pushing these group identities and these quotas. I mean, absolutely incredible. And you know, the other thing that just strikes me is that this uh, redefining of terminology to mean often the exact opposite of the actual meaning. I mean, the, the obvious one is redefining of the term woman and how that, for example, affects Title IX. Like, so yeah. f- absolutely foundationally, all you needed to do is redefine that word suddenly the whole legal the whole meaning of the law is completely changed right? Obviously you you think this needs to be stopped but how because you're you're painting the picture of this behemoth that's just kind of growing and kind of eating everything along the way. Well, I think first is sunshine. I don't think people know what's happening until
0: a few months ago. I didn't know what was happening. Uh, this whole algorithmic and artificial intelligence. Um, Bias-free bias free uh, bias. So I think people need to be aware of it. I think politicians are not aware of it. So I think part of it is an education campaign to call attention to this. And then I think the tools that we have now that states are using, particularly more aggressive states like Florida could be used that you know the states are the biggest purchaser and the government is the biggest purchaser of almost everything in the country because government is so large and if certain red states were to pass legislation or executive orders um, addressing the manipulation of artificial intelligence to violate the state's anti-discrimination laws. Uh, And if someday there's a different administration, maybe even at the federal level, to me what they're doing with the algorithms and they're doing with the artificial intelligence to bake quotas into it is plain violation of existing law. You don't need new laws. You just need to get somebody to enforce the laws and says you cannot discriminate technologically just like you can't discriminate in terms of face-to-face or considering a job application. It's early enough in the development that if there is intervention now, I think a huge impact. A year, two, three from now, it's going to be much more difficult. Right now, we're on the cusp of this explosion of baked-in quotas through
1: technology. Now is the time that people have to learn about it. So what's really hitting me hard here at this moment is that this, this you know, euphemistic bias-free moniker, which actually means heavily biased or biased, I mean, you could apply that to anywhere. Like, I was just thinking about that as you were speaking with discrimination. You'll have, you'll have to have a discrimination-free You know sort of tag but what that actually means is you're discriminating yeah and
0: um, this has worked its way into medicine as well so uh, during the pandemic in 2021 new york state issued guidelines for the distribution of covid therapeutic pills that were new to the market and in short supply so they had to be rationed and one of the ways they were rationed according to new york state policy was based on race. If you uh, wanted this medication, you had to test positive for COVID. You had to have mild to moderate symptoms. You couldn't be too far along. You had to seek it within five days of symptoms, and you then had to show a risk factor. Being non-white was deemed a risk factor. If you were white, you actually had to show that you had some personal risk factor. You had heart disease or you had diabetes. So they set up different tests depending on whether you were white non-white and I actually challenged that. I filed a lawsuit against the New York State Health Commissioner. The discrimination was not that someone's deprived of the pill it's that they have a barrier to entry that somebody else doesn't have. Unfortunately I lost it um, in the federal courts on the concept of what they call standing to sue. You have to show that you will actually be directly and imminently impacted by this and uh, district court and Court of Appeals ruled that I hadn't had COVID yet, I didn't, they didn't know if I would get it, they didn't know if I would qualify for this medication, they didn't know and therefore it's too attenuated for me to be a plaintiff. There was another case brought by another person that kind of moved on the same track and that person was denied also by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. They went to get it reviewed by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not take the case but really the, I think the argument was that It's over. You know This medication is not in short supply. We don't know if this will ever happen again. But Justice Alito and Justice Thomas wrote a statement in connection with the denial of taking the case. It's not a dissent. They said, we agree. This is like an old issue. It's come and gone. But in the future, should any state government use race as one of the factors in access to medicine that that would warrant prompt supreme court review is both in my case and this other case the entire medical establishment backed the state of new york's discriminatory the american medical association i think it was the american college of surgeons um, two to three dozen major medical groups filed briefs a joint brief in which they said yes it's okay for the state of new york to issue these discriminatory guidelines because COVID has had a bigger impact on non-white groups. Again, treating people as group members. So if you have two people who walk into an emergency room and want this medication, one automatically qualifies based on the color of skin. The other has to go an extra step and prove that that person has a risk factor. The entire medical establishment is behind this. It's, you talk about capture
1: of institutions. Our medical institutions have been captured by this ideology. You know, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up because this is one of the things I absolutely want to talk about in depth and you cover. I mean, you've described um, the racialization of medical education and medicine constitutes a national emergency, right? And maybe that's not obvious to everybody, obvious to me, but why? Sure. The, the racialization of education, medicine, other
0: fields now, essentially is pitting people against each other based on race, based on one of the factors. However you define race uh, and ethnicity, uh, color of skin might be another way to do it. A lot of these talk about people of color. Uh, Never say how much color is needed in the skin, but people of color versus whites. Um, So it's setting up racial conflict. That's all it is. It's in the education establishment. It's teaching students to view fellow students based on the color of skin. To view teachers based on the color of skin. One of the things that we do at Legal Insurrection is we find either parents or teachers who we tell their story or let them tell their story, and we then bring them forward to national media attention. And we had such a person who was a middle school teacher in Providence, Rhode Island. And she was white, blonde haired, blue eyed, had been in the system for 20 years, never a problem after the George Floyd killing, when all of this critical race stuff started to take over everything, they replaced the curriculum in her middle school. Uh, great authors were literally pulled off the shelves and thrown into to, you know, wheelbarrows to be thrown out. And they brought in new books, new pamphlets mostly. And the consistent theme in the pamphlets was oppressor versus oppressed. Everything in U.S. history was taken through a white oppressor, versus non-white oppressed every aspect of our society and she talked about how over the course of just a year it changed the students they began to have hostility towards her she's in a district that's almost 100 percent non-white i think it's 90 plus percent non-white mostly hispanic but also african-american and she talked about how they started um, refusing to stand for the pledge of allegiance In Rhode Island, it is required that every classroom recite the pledge. Now, constitutionally, no student has to recite it, but the teacher needs to lead the class. They stopped standing for the Pledge of Allegiance because they didn't view themselves as part of the country. They started to refer to her as America. You're America because you're white. We're not America because we're non-white. And the hostility escalated, and now she's in legal proceedings with the school district. But that's a good example of how poisonous it is to our society. You're teaching non-white students that they're doomed to fail. You're teaching them that their failure is baked into the system, that there's nothing they can do about it. They don't need to participate. The Providence School District, where all of this is happening, they have so much time to spend on diversity, equity, and inclusion that is a complete failure. It's so bad that it had to be taken over by the state. Their 2022 fall reading and math test scoring their state testing came through I think it was 12 percent were at grade level in English and that's the good news only 9 percent were at grade level in math it is a complete failure yet they are obsessed with race is so baked in this racialization that they openly discriminate against white teachers there's they have a new teacher hiring program at, where as an incentive you can get up to $25,000 of your student loans if you're a new teacher into the Providence system, paid off by the largest foundation in Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Foundation, a billion and a half dollar charity. They will pay off 25,000 of your loans if you're hired by Providence, but only if you're non-white. And we filed the legal challenge to that. They don't care. They have other programs they do that have similar discrimination. They were actually holding segregated teacher events, literally segregated, no whites allowed uh, at the Providence School District. We did manage to stop that. It is so destructive to society. When I say it's, it's a, a wake-up call, it's a national emergency, it's because that's, you're destroying education, you're pitting people against each other based on race, which historically, certainly in our country but around the world, is one of the most inflammatory ways you can set groups against each other. And and that's what this is about. This is part of the tearing down of society.
1: Uh maybe about half a year ago, I just became aware of this ideology getting deep into medical schools that will likely result in people being schooled, you know, not in competency around medicine but around other things as a priority.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing this. So we have a website called criticalrace.org that's one of our websites which catalogs and maps out the infiltration of critical race theory in education, including we have a database and a map for medical schools. We've just finished that map for all 155 US um, approved medical schools and the clear majority have adopted this ideology. They have um, you know, bias response teams, they have uh, programming on DEI, uh, they have all of these other things that inject race into it. Now there certainly are times when race or ethnicity is something that needs to be taken into account in a diagnosis because there are some groups who for whatever the reason might have more sensitivity to certain sort of medications. So you want to know that. But that's very different than stereotyping groups. That's very different than like New York State Health Department did saying we're going to prioritize people based on the color of their skin. Uh, and that's what you're seeing taught. Everything that's going on in academia generally is happening in the medical schools now. And I would argue in some ways it's it's worse because this is where doctors are trained on how to treat patients. This is where the American Medical Association is extraordinarily aggressive in terms of pushing this sort of ideology and even the accrediting agencies are beginning to look at this. So this is really troublesome and I do think particularly in the medical field because people literally can die. I mean we sometimes get a, you know a little bit of hyperbole when you talk about things. Oh it's going to kill people. No this literally could kill people if the New York state regulations or the way they were implemented we may never know but when they discriminated on the basis of race in handing out these COVID therapeutics when they were in short supply. Literally, there may have been somebody who died or got very ill because they were denied access based on the color of their skin, and somebody with a different skin color who did not need it as badly got it over them. So This is a very serious situation. When we speak to medical students, a lot of them know this is wrong. I can't say we've surveyed enough to talk about, but anecdotally, the ones, they all know this is going on and they don't like it, but they're not going to buck the system.
1: You can't expect a student to buck this system. Well, I'm sure a lot of the teachers feel the same way, I'm sure. So, what is it that is driving this so hard, really? Um, you know, there's particularly odd incentive structures that are involved, I know that but is there, is there also a kind of a mania about this? Is there a mass hysteria? I mean, somehow this is being pushed so hard, despite the fact that there's so many people that are just sort of perplexed by it, but you know, don't, want to, don't want to buck the system. Yeah, I, I think if you look back at the
0: history, going back to the early 80s, for me at least, um, you can see how these concepts developed over time and they became embedded in the systems. But if you're looking for a triggering event, that caused the mania that we're seeing now, it was no question the the death of George Floyd. It's almost like there were plans on the shelf to take over everything, and that was the excuse they needed to do it. And so you saw universities declaring themselves quote-unquote anti-racist campuses. Now anti-racist doesn't mean what you think it means. It actually means being racist. It's Ibram Kendi's concept of being an anti-racist, which is you discriminate currently in order to cure past discrimination. So it excuses current discrimination. You saw this everywhere. I saw it at Cornell and spoke out against it. And that was one of the things that led to us creating criticalrace.org. It is a mania. It is virtue signaling in many cases run amok. It is corporations trying to buy peace by donating monies. The, I've seen in multiple different publications that approximately fifty five zero billion billion with a B, not million with an M, $50 billion were pledged in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd to uh, race, quote unquote racial justice programs. Now not all of that has been paid. And that's in fact, you hear that gripe, where's our money? But many billions, probably tens of billions, have been paid to support these efforts. Follow the money. It's where the money is. If you want to get a grant from a major foundation, Ford Foundation, any of them, you've probably got to prove your DEI bona fides. That's where the money is for universities. It's where the money is for individuals. It's The money is for the consultants. It's follow the money. And there were tens of billions allocated to this, not just at the private foundation and private company level, but the corporate level and the uh, federal government and state government levels. So it's a massive undertaking, but it is a mania. It's a mania that I think is subsiding a little. I think it's beginning to burn itself out. That doesn't mean it's going to go away. But the intensity of 2020 and 2021 could not be sustained. It was literally ripping things apart. It was having professors be targeted, including me. It was having uh, people lose their jobs. It was you know, internet mobs going after people who sent an ambiguous tweet that's being taken out of context so they track you down and they contact your employer and you get fired. It was a mania that I think was unsustainable and I think in the last year it's calmed down. But the underlying factors are there except in states like Florida which are now cracking down. The DEI bureaucrats are still there, the philosophy is still there, the money is still for the most part, still there. And so a lot of universities, you have to submit a DEI statement in order to even get hired. I could never be hired at Cornell for many reasons, one of which is political. But also, I would refuse to sign a DEI statement. And uh, Cornell now, when it got some bad publicity about that, changed it from mandatory to voluntary. But the fact is everybody knows if you're going to get hired, you've got to bow down to the DEI you know, ideology. And even worse than that, when you look at these DEI statements, they not only require you to recite that you agree with this, they also want you to show how you have tailored your career to advance it. So it's very insidious. It is a mania. I think that's the right word. It's a mania
1: that's calming down, but the structural problems are still there. It's still very deeply embedded. And the thing, you know, you just reminded me as you're talking about, you said use the word insidious. I was thinking the same word as, as you were speaking, but this, there's this insidious part that we didn't talk about is it just forces a lot of people just to lie. If I want to get hired, I'm going to have to make up this di statement and pretend that I've structured my whole life around this concept. Right? because if I don't say it convincingly enough, they're going to give it to the guy that did. Right, And what a, what a terrible way to shift society. Yeah, it's all a charade, it's all a performative art in many ways,
0: but it's damaging performative art. And so yes, it, it forces people to lie. It forces people to pretend they're something they're not and they have to keep their own thoughts to themselves. I studied in the Soviet Union in college Okay. I,
1: I, hey, you've got a good case.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you, did, you actually did. Yeah. So it's, um, I'm aware of what it's like to live in a society where you have to pretend to be something you're not. Mm. And you can express your private thoughts, but you have to be very careful who you express them to. Right. Okay? Um, and who is really trustworthy and who is going to turn you in. Uh, And and so it's a terrible society to live. And that's what academia is becoming in many ways, where you have to say things you don't really believe, and you have to be very careful in whom you confide. And a lot of students confide in me, so I know whenever there's a knock at the door and it's a student, particularly one I don't know, you know, hi, professor, do you mind if I shut the door? I know exactly what's going to happen. They're going to say, I can't take it anymore. I've got to recite these things in class. You know, It's not that the professors threaten me, but I'm worried if I disagree on some of these racial or hot topic issues that it's going to affect my grade or bad things will be said about me on the internet and it might be hard to find a job. So we create a society on campuses which is very much like the society in the Soviet Union where there's an official ideology that you must agree with and you must pledge allegiance to
1: and you have to keep any contrary thoughts to yourself at risk of exposure. It's not just that you have to ascribe to, it's to this ideology. You have to so basically support a, a malicious one, right? It's malicious. It forces you to Um, You know, betray your conscience, basically, if you want to be successful, i say that in quotes, right? Campuses are like the incubator for a lot of this.
0: uh, That, you know, bias response teams, anonymous reporting, deprivation of due process rights in campus judicial tribunals. Uh, It's very much like a totalitarian society. The fact that you can report somebody anonymously and the burden is on them to prove that they're not guilty. And they don't get the normal, you know, way to prove things. They don't get to cross-examine witnesses. It's a very malicious sort of ideology that has taken over, where the mere accusation is enough to ruin your life, and it's very much like a Kafka trapping is the term that's often used for it where the denial of the accusation is used as proof of the accusation and that's what you see in the racial programming on colleges. Salem witch trials. I just I had to throw yeah. that out there <laughs> okay. right but please continue. Yeah. yeah I mean Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. The proof of your racism is that you're so fragile about being called ra- racist mm-hmm. uh, and, and so that's what you have on campuses that the denial is used as proof because in the critical race theory um, paradigm, you don't have to be conscious of your racism. You're just, you're just part of it. Yeah. I mean, you have to submit. Right? You have to submit, and you have to
1: essentially work your life to beg for forgiveness for things you've never done. And just as another aside, so during you, we talked a little bit about the uh, BLM protests and riots, and so there's this whole thing of law enforcement at times taking the knee. You have to sort of admit your guilt or admit your you know, complicity or, or, or whatever it is. That's part of it. It's like a loyalty oath. Yeah, I think that's it, and it wasn't just law enforcement. It was
0: professional athletes. It was university professors, Cornell had its own uh, take-a-knee faculty protest where I, think I actually went to it just to see what it would be like. I didn't take a knee, but I said, I want to see who's here. Uh, and uh, there were right, over 100, I think it was, um, maybe more, significantly more faculty who went there to take a knee right in that time period. So uh, yeah, it's a very repressive ideology that's taken place. And, and it's one that it's very hard to stand up against it because As happened at Hamilton College, uh, universities are no longer have diversity of thought, certainly at the faculty level. Cornell Sun student newspaper has done many surveys. They've actually done a good job on this. Not everything they do is so great, but this they've done well on, uh, tracking faculty, political donations, and political registrations. No surprise that approaching 100% 97, 98, 99 percent of donations go to Democrats, and that's how faculty is registered, and so
1: that's what happens. You get a monoculture. Well, and you know, I can't help but wonder if their purpose behind that isn't to you know, basically indicate what the correct way to be is. It, it, we're going to have to kind of close up a little bit, but you know, talking about all these professors at Cornell, how many, how many are with you on this? Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, I know there are a small number
0: who agree with me on these, who are willing to express that to me. My guess is that the faculty have the same concerns and fears that the students have, which is, you know, faculty members get protested, their attempts to get them fired. Um, it's happened to me, it happened to others. And so nobody wants to live like that. And plus you have a filtering, a self-selection, that the people who get hired are the people who tend to not agree with me. I would never have been hired if I had my website before Cornell hired me. I started it a year after I joined. Faculty is less diverse in terms of viewpoint than the students are. I think there's more diversity among the students. The faculty is close to a monoculture, and same with the administrators. You're not worried about your job? Well, uh, really, since I started the website, and, you know, people find this hard to believe, for almost a decade there was a constant stream of attempts to get me fired, um, mostly from off the campus. Um, huge amount of hostility to my website. Um, I stopped picking up my office phone in 2009 because I didn't know who would be calling me, somebody deranged. Um, and then in, after George Floyd, when I spoke out against the rioting and the looting, there were organized efforts to get me fired, unsuccessful. Um, organized uh, letter-writing campaigns from alumni, organized petitions. 21 of my colleagues signed a letter denouncing me. The dean denounced me. Um, and so people learned the lesson not to speak out. And not everybody wants to pay that price. And people learn the lesson. Uh, I forget if, I think it was Lenin who had The statement, maybe it was somebody else in the Russian Revolution shoot one person, scare 10,000. And that's what happens on campuses. That a lot of times people say, Oh, this is not a prevalent problem. Count for me how many professors have actually been fired in the last year because of this. Oh, well, there's only five or six or eight or ten or however many. Yeah, but for each one who gets fired, it tells the whole campus not to speak out. And it spreads even further. And that's what you're seeing. For a number of years, you saw essentially a reign of terror on campuses post-George Floyd um, against any professor who spoke out against the Black Lives Matter movement. And the one diversity that you will never hear
1: uh, implemented on campuses is diversity of viewpoint. Well, um, so as a final thought, uh, what is your, I guess, message to people in the educational system, whether it's medical schools, whether it's you know, in law schools, whether it's in general, um, that, that might be concerned about all this? Well, I think educate yourself. Uh, take control of your children's
0: education, whether it's homeschooling or some other schooling, um, or if you're going to send them to public school, get involved. Don't just hand your kids off to strangers almost invariably who are left-wing strangers with an agenda. Don't just hand them off and then 15 years later say, oh my God, what happened here? Well, where were you for those 15 years? You've got to run for school board. You've got to get yourself involved in the the parent-teacher groups. Grab a hold of the future of your children and guide them. Don't allow strangers to do it and then complain 15 years from now when you don't recognize your own child ideologically. And what about to people who are faculty? Um, It's very tough. It's very tough and that's why a lot of faculty leave. I think that pressure has to come from outside. I do not believe that most universities can cure themselves, can um, resolve these problems on their own. They can't reform themselves because they're monocultures whether it's parents, whether students not, choosing not to apply to that school, whether it's state legislatures where the funding comes from the state. I think all of those pressures have to be brought from the outside in, whether it's publicity. Schools are very concerned about bad publicity. You cannot expect faculty, at least not faculty, who want to keep their jobs or get hired or get promoted to fight this battle. I wish there were more who fought the battle, there are some who do but they are relatively few and one of the things that I know because of messages I get is there are a lot more people who agree with me than are able to admit it And I and I have no real criticisms for them. I understand, you know, academia was not my life. I had a private practice before I came to academia. If they fired me I'd do something else but for a lot of people it's their life. It's the only thing they've known and I think it's too much.
1: To expect them to put their jobs at risk. Well, Professor William Jacobson, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining Professor William Jacobson and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Kelleck.